Okay, please open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 3, and let's start today's broadcast, if we may, in verse 1. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God, and the seven stars, and other works thou hast a name, that thou livest, and art dead. Sardis, church number 5, prophetically speaking, will cover a period from 1520 to around 1750 A.D., and we're thinking about people like Luther and Calvin around this time scale, Brainard and Wesley. And these men, whether you like them or not, did change the world. And those men continue to change the world. Also, please keep in mind that the description of church or the meaning of church in the first century, as far as a Gentile was concerned, would be someone's home. And as far as a Jew was concerned, it would probably be their local synagogue. The Jews that got saved had their synagogue to fall back on. And that synagogue, referred to as an assembly over in the book of James, was their meeting place. Whereas the Gentiles that got saved would meet in people's homes. And again, the uh, message is to the angel, being in the third heaven, not on the earth. These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God, and the seven stars. And I made the case at the beginning of this uh, study, back in chapter 1, that the seven spirits of God are not in reference, or is not in reference to the Holy Ghost. I know most Bible commentators think that it is, but I can't find anywhere in the scripture where the Holy Ghost is referred to as being seven persons, or even seven parts to him. And I took the case, so I took the view, and I still do that. The seven spirits of God are the seven stars. And yet you've got a comma after seven spirits of God and the seven stars. In fact, keep your hand in Revelation chapter 3 and go to Revelation chapter 20. Now, I'm no expert when it comes to grammar. I'll let the grammatarians, if that's the correct word, uh, explain this in more detail. But in Revelation chapter 20, you get... A similar uh, breakdown or a similar piece of scripture. Revelation chapter 20, verse 2. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent which is the devil, comma, and Satan, comma, and bound him a thousand years. And I've had people say over the years that they think that Satan isn't the devil, or the devil isn't Satan. They get confused because of the comma. But I think what's going on here, and obviously I would just say as quickly that Satan, Lucifer, Uh, The dragon, the serpents are all one person, just different names for that person. But what I think is going on here is simply the way the AV has been laid out. They put a comma after, which is the devil, comma, and Satan. Not two persons, just one person with two titles. So go back to Revelation chapter 3. Like I say, I'm no grammatarian, but my understanding of this is that when it says uh, that he hath the seven spirits of God, comma, and the seven stars. I will leave it as it is and simply suggest to you all this morning, if I may, that the seven spirits of God are the seven stars. The comma simply is there to uh, put a difference or a break between the two. But from the latter parts, from verse 1, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and art dead. And you hear that term, he lived up to his reputation, His name went before him. This is a dead church as well. And like I say, this will cover a period from 1520 to 1750. 
But when you backslide, you become dead again. That doesn't make a lot of sense, I know, but it's like this, that when you backslide, you resurrect the old man or the old woman. And Paul speaks about that over in First Timothy chapter 5, about the widows that have neglected their first love. And he says they are dead while they live. So when you backslide, you are resurrecting the old man or the old woman. Pretty awful thought, I know. But this church is dead. Let's read on. Verse 2. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for have not found their works perfect before God. The problem this church had, prophetically speaking, was not only would they backslide, which of course they did, but the fear was that some of these people would go back to the Catholic Church. And I've heard of people that have got saved and have gone back into the Catholic Church. They come out of the Catholic Church and have gone back into the Catholic Church. And I remember one particular woman who was raised in a Catholic Church, left the Catholic Church, married a man who was an elder, a bishop in the Mormon religion, had a son or two with him who were also members of the Mormon religion. And after 50 years of being in the Mormon religion, raising her sons in that religion, tithing, uh, supporting a husband who was a bishop in the Mormon religion, towards the end of her life, went back to the Catholic Church. It does happen. People go back and forth. Catholics come out and they join another system. And they either stay put or they go back or they leave that system and become agnostic. People are very strange. People are very complex. But the concern here is that their works were not perfect before God. You'll never find a pure church. You'll never find a perfect church. You never find a perfect Christian. We all sin and we all fall short of the glory of God. Let's keep reading on. I'll try and pull these verses together. Verse 3. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come on thee, or I will come upon thee. The address has to be to Rome. The address has to be to those that came out of Romanism, like Luther, Calvin, to not go back into Romanism, to stay firm. And yet today, we've got pretty much every church of Christendom, not only flirting with Rome, but very much in bed with Rome. And I spoke about this last week concerning the church that was in the hotbed of Satan, the church of Pergamos, and they were very much stationed where Satan's seat is. And they had a martyr there who paid the ultimate price, and yet they were too near to the whore of Rome. But here the Lord says, If therefore thou shalt not repent, if you won't take heed to what I am telling you, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. That's a terrible thought, that you get saved, you take Christ as your saviour, and yes, that saves you, and that keeps you saved, and yet that doesn't necessarily mean that your relationship is going to be what it should be. And that's why it's imperative to come out of the whore of Rome. Revelation 18, chapter 4, 2 Corinthians six fourteen to 18, and stay out. Because if you go back into that system, once you've come out, you are now a spiritual adulterer. You've fallen from grace. But let's keep reading on. Verse 4. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. During this period of time, from 1520 to 1750, the King James Bible 
was given to the world. And that book transformed the world. And that book continues to be the most sold book in the world and yet the most neglected book in the world. And I think here this reference to a few names, even in Sardis, is probably in reference to the translators to some extent and to those that received the King James, like Brainard, like Wesley, like D.R. Moody, for example. And as such, they haven't defiled their garments. They haven't sold out. They're not messing around with the Apocrypha or the Septuagint or Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. This isn't just in reference to imputation, which we all get the moment we are saved. This is probably in reference to one's role in the millennium. Garments, white, purity, holiness, rule and reign. These things are all conditional on what a person does once they get saved. Grace is one thing. Grace gets you saved and grace keeps you saved. But once you are saved, how are you living? Are you walking with him in holiness? Or are you feeding the flesh? Verse 5. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I'll not blot out his name out of the book of life. But I'll confess his name before my father and before his angels. He that overcometh, he that overcomes. I showed you from First John chapter 4 and 5. Simply means those that are born again. Different term. Those that are now a new creature in Christ. So once you are saved... You are an overcomer. But he goes on to say, He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. Technically, imputation. Christ righteousness given to you. And yet on top of that, I'm still thinking that it's uh, probably in reference to one's place in the millennial kingdom. But let's keep reading on. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. When a person is born, they go into the Lord's book of life. And as they go through life, if they get saved, they go into the Lamb's book of life. But if they don't get saved, and they die unsaved, the name is removed from the book of life. But I'll confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Very reminiscence of Matthew chapter 10. If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father, which is in heaven. And also Luke adds on the holy angels in reference to those that confess Christ. In the presence of others. But if you don't confess him in the presence of others. He won't confess you. In the presence of his father and of the holy angels. Meaning hellfire for you. Go to Psalm 69. And in Psalm 69. There's a reference here to this book of life. We know from the latter parts of Revelation. How there are at least three books. Uh, one is the Lamb's book of life. Which is where your name will be if you're saved. The other is the Book of Life, which records everyone's uh, birth. And there's a third book for memory, which is probably going to be in reference to those that get saved in the tribulation, die in the tribulation, and are resurrected to receive their rewards. Revelation chapter 20. For those of us which are saved today, uh, if we were to die today, we would be judged at the judgment seats of the Lord, not the great white throne judgment. But from Psalm 69, there's a scripture from verse 28. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living, and not be written with the righteous. Those that reject Jesus, like I say, are going to be blotted out. It's almost like you never lived. It's a terrible thought. 
you go through your entire life doing your own thing. And uh, if you're fortunate, you get up into your 70s, your 80s or your 90s. And then you die and you go into everlasting hell. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. And I see some of these old people, elderly women, elderly men, who won't receive the gospel, who continue to turn it down. And people say, she's such a dear old lady. He's such a sweet old man. But always remember this, that she wasn't always a sweet old lady. He wasn't always a dear old man. That woman could have been an abortionist. That man could have been a concentration camp guard. I know these are extreme examples, but I'm just trying to underscore that the appearance can be very misleading. So when it says, let them be blotted out of the book of the living, it means just that. For those that thumb their nose at the Lord, to those that reject the Lord, to those that think they're going to make it to heaven, if there is a heaven without Christ, they will be blotted out of the book of the living. They will be thrown into a lake of fire and not be written with the righteous. That's you and I if you're saved. Go back to Revelation chapter 3. One more time from verse 5. He that overcometh, he that is born again, he that has appropriated the atonement, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. Imputation, but on top of that, one's place in the millennial kingdom, if they remain holy and don't become perpetual backsliders, so on and so forth. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. Picture there also of eternal security. But I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Verse 6. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And I think to myself this. When John wrote the book of Revelation, known also as the Apocalypse, I wonder what the early churches made of this. For 30 years they've had the Pauline epistles, they've had the Gospels, apart from John, probably. And they've got a pretty good understanding of how the Lord thinks, how he operates, what he likes, what he doesn't like, what they are expected to do. And then right to the end of the first century, this book arrives through their letterbox, if you will. And this book is delivered to them via the Apostle John. And this book would have blown them away. All this term about overcoming, doing this, doing that, previously unheard of. And of course, you know that this book is very much uh, to be read and studied in conjunction with the book of Daniel. Like Hebrews goes hand in hand with Leviticus. Hear that hath an ear, verse 6 again. Let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that is receptive, he that has humbled himself, he that loves the Lord, he that is not only a Bible believer, but a Bible reader. Let him hear what the Spirit, Holy Ghost, saith unto the churches. First and foremost, to those in Turkey, at the end of the first century, but prophetically aimed at the church over a 2,000 year period. To those six verses concerning the church of Sardis are to be taken seriously. A dead church, a backslidden church, a church which on the one hand lived up to its name, commanding someone like Martin Luther for reaching out to Catholics, and yet he would backslide, he would baptize infants, he would retain many of the vestments. John Calvin would come along, very much an intellectual, and he would train up 2,000 men to go into Catholic France from memory, and his seminary, as it was referred to at the time, was a seminary of death, because so many of his men were martyred. 
by the Catholic Church. And yet he too would teach some bizarre doctrines like predestination, some being chosen for heaven, some being chosen for hell. And he too would fall into areas which would put him in the category of a backslider. But verse 3, If therefore thou shalt not watch, if you won't put your house in order, I'll come on thee as a thief. And thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Very much similar to chapter 2, uh, verse 5 about, If you don't repent, I will come upon thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. I can't stress the importance of living righteously, living holy, after you are saved. I don't mean in a sense that you're always going to be holy, you're always going to be perfect. No, of course not. But you should make an effort. You should try and control your flesh. And you should try and remain faithful to the Lord. Four and five, some of these people in Sardis haven't defiled their garments. They are walking with the Lord. And they are worthy. They're going to get a crown. And I think about the King James Bible, like I say, and those that believed it, like Brainard, like Wesley, like Spurgeon, like D.R. Moody, so many of the greats. He that overcometh, verse 5, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. Picture of purity, which you get from Christ, and on top of that, which you get as a result of walking with the Lord. And I will not blot out his name out to the book of life. Once saved, always saved, or if saved, always saved. But I'll confess his name before my father and before his angels. Very much in reference to the third heaven. He that hath an ear, verse 6, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So the warning is given to the churches and vicariously you and I living today. So that takes care of the church of Sardis in a nutshell. But look at verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thou works, behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Key of David, very messianic. The angel of the church in Philadelphia, referred to as brotherly love. These things saith he that is holy. God is holy, the word of God is holy, and the saints is holy. Outside of those three particulars, nothing or no one is holy. And yes, the angels, of course, if they are chosen to serve the church, would be holy, but they fall under the remit of heaven. He that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. It's all of God. God is sovereign. And sometimes we get uh, criticised by our Calvinist brethren for suggesting, for teaching that perhaps we don't believe that Almighty God is all sovereign, which of course is nonsense. We do believe that. One of his names is, is uh, El Alion, and El Alion means the Eternal One, the Sovereign One. So we do believe that Almighty God is just that, Almighty, All-Powerful, Omnipotent, Omniscient, Omnipresent. We believe that. What we don't believe is that the Lord has chosen some people for salvation and others for hell. And we believe that man has a free will. We don't think man is a robot. That is what separates us from our Calvinist brethren. And yet, here, verse 7, if I was to sum it up briefly, I would say this, that the church 
is uh, very much in the Lord's right hand. And on top of that, he has the key. He's also the door. It's all of him, not of us. And he goes and say in verse 8, how he knows thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. Also, a great picture to that reference from Matthew chapter 16, how the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. And I've spoken to Mormons over the years, and I've asked them to explain to me, first of all, where the church was before Joseph Smith arrived. And they will say, well, the church was in apostasy. The church was in a mess. Very few, if any, were getting saved before Joseph Smith arrived on the scene. And I asked them to explain Matthew 16, how the gates of hell will never prevail. The church will never be completely shut down. Yes, you'll have apostasy. Paul wrote about that over in Second Thessalonians, which I looked at last week. But to teach that the entire church went into darkness up until the 19th century, when Smith came on the scene, is absurd, not to mention heretical. I've set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, Bible believers, King James, Bible believers, and has not denied my name. You think of that scripture over in uh, Psalm 138. I'll read it to you. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And also from the scripture, Psalm 138. Get there shortly. You are told in your King James Bible, and only in your King James Bible, it's been corrected everywhere else. Uh, Psalm 138, I think it's verse 2. I worship toward thy holy temple, and praise thy name for thy loving kindness, and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. He's put his word above all his name. And have you look at that. On the one hand, you've got Christ, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, a picture of those that are going to go into hell. And on the other hand, you've got a picture here of the word of God, a sharp two-edged sword. So you take these verses, you put them together, and you've got, on the one hand, Christ being exalted before the damned going to everlasting hell. But for the here and now, his word, the written word, has been magnified, elevated above all of thy name. Remarkable. Go back to Revelation chapter 2. He knows their works. He set before them an open door. No man can shut it. And you think to yourself about those uh, those during the period of the Philadelphia church, which starts around 1750 to 1900. And you think to yourself of the greats like uh, Moody, Gypsy Smith, even Clarence Larkin, who wrote some great books about the second coming of the Lord. That was a movement. And those people got millions saved. And the Lord opened doors all over the world. China, Japan, Russia, Africa. And once that door was opened, nobody could shut it. But the latter part of verse 8 has kept my word and has not denied my name. They kept the word, being the King James Bible, and didn't deny his name. Being Jesus, to those of us which are English speakers, or Yeshua, to our Hebrew brethren, they were a faithful church. Look at verse 9. Behold, I make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Back to that term again, synagogue of Satan. You think to yourself, which uh, people can we identify 
who's going to be very much uh, in the frame here for this term, the synagogue of Satan. Well, during this time, from 1750 to 1900, you got replacement theology, very much growing. The church, they would have you believe, has replaced Israel. The papacy is very much deity. You go to the priest, you go to the pope, and he does what he can for you. You don't go to the high priest, being Christ, but you go to the priest, being a Catholic priest, or the Pope, and being the so-called Holy Father. And I think this piece of scripture, I make them, of the synagogue of Satan, is probably in reference to those that hold to replacement theology. We could teach in that the church has replaced Israel. On top of that, we can't ignore the fact that the early church were very much battling Judaizers, and also a third group, the Hebrewites, could also be in the frame here, and I met them last week, which say they are Jews and are not, which is what replacement theology is in a nutshell. If you speak to somebody who holds to replacement theology, they will tell you that they are Israel, literally, which of course is incorrect. At best, if you are saved, you are spiritual Israel. At best, if you are saved, you are a spiritual Jew, but you're not a literal Jew. The Lord God has not finished with Israel. If you don't believe me, read Romans chapter 11. And the last part of verse 9 I will conclude. I make them to come and worship before thy feet. Just imagine that. If you're saved in eternity, the Lord is going to make those that said they were Jews, said that they were part of the synagogue of Satan to come and worship before thy feet. Now most of Christendom believe this. Most of Christendom think that they are spiritual and also literal Jews. And as a result, they're going to come and worship before thy feet. This is aimed at the Church of Philadelphia, 1750-ish to 1900-ish. Can't be dogmatic. And although that period has been and gone, there are still people that are faithful to the Scripture. And therefore this will be aimed at those that are still faithful to the Scripture. People like you and I, if you're premillennial, if you're pre-tribulational, if you're a King James Bible believer, if you love Israel, if you love the Jews, Almighty God will make those that are part of this replacement theology movement, replacement theology, reformed theology, to come and worship before thy feet. I don't quite understand that, but that's what the text clearly tells me. And to know that I have loved thee. Remarkable. So I'm going to close there in verse 9. And just say very quickly that what you've had this morning are nine verses looking at uh, the fifth church being Sardis, the sixth church being the church of Philadelphia, and there's still more verses to read concerning the church of Philadelphia. And like every church in the scripture, you've got saved people and unsaved people. Nothing has changed even today. You've got saved people living side by side with unsaved people. And that's why I need to read these verses very carefully. Because on the one hand, the Lord is commending and he's also condemning. But I will further elaborate on that next week when we go to verse 10, being Revelation chapter 3, verse 10.